right, welcome everyone to this uh, evening's Greenhouse Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jurgensen and this is Fenarna Jurgensen and we are the co-directors of the Greenhouse and the hosts for this book talk series. We're happy to welcome today Peter Anker, who is Professor of History of Science at New York University in the US. And he'll be presenting his book, The Power of the Periphery, how Norway became an environmental pioneer for the world. That's out with Cambridge University Press this year. And over in the chat uh, box, for those of you joining us live, there's a link um, to get a copy of the book for free. So please take advantage of that. And now we'll turn it over to Peter. Hi, everyone. I hope you're safe and healthy in uh, the strange times you're living in. Um, I just want to first say thank you to Finn, Arna, and Dolly for inviting me. Uh, such an honor to be part of this, this lecture series, which have many prominent speakers. I uh, also want to say thanks to friends and families. I see some of you here. Uh, and I want to say thank you to um, the historians in arm in uh, Norway. It was inspired me. Uh, this book really came out of um, uh, something called Forum for University History. Uh, back in the day, 10 years ago, I was part of that. And some of the original ideas come from that group. Um, and also the uh, historians at the University of Oslo at Iakoho, who has been supporting this in different ways. So thank you to you guys. Um, and I'm most also grateful to many of the, or all, actually all of the environmental activists that I'm writing about in this book. Uh, many of them are, are still around and, uh, you know, thank you for all your efforts to try to be good to this world. And uh, hopefully I've done some justice to you uh, in this book, uh, though, of course, you may not agree with everything I am saying, which is totally fine. Um, it is, it is very special to write about people who are still live and absolutely kicking. Uh, so please kick back uh, or say or whatever. Uh, the book is for free. You just go down to the link and download the entire book. It's open access, uh, which is a gift because now everyone can read it uh, and just read whatever you feel is worth reading and then throw it away. Um, there's also a hardback version here. It costs a fortune, so I don't recommend it. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, if you're into hardback and you have a budget, go for it. And then there's a, a Norwegian um, a version in the latest issue of Sin and Sin and Sign, which is Sino Sign, which is a new Norwegian. Uh, uh, look at that header. Thank you for buying my book. Um, uh, which you can get the summary in New Norwegian. I, I thought since this is about the periphery that it being in the Sino uh, sign will be like uh, periphery enough. Um, all right, so let's get into the juice. Uh, this book really uh, came out of uh, many of my uh, new uh, New York friends wondering, you know, and always commenting on Norway being the good people. Somehow, Norway was like doing the, the right thing. It was this idea that Norway had a kind of a, the right type of socialism, socialism with a new a human face that took care of people through healthcare and whatnot. And Norway also was good to the world in many, many different ways, especially in an environmental way. And uh, that might be so. I'm not really questioning that. Norway is doing many good things, but Norway is also doing very problematic things. So for me, the image is, is more uh, twisted and nuanced. So I wanted to uh, kind of figure out where does this image come from of Norway being these good people? Um, uh, and then the argument uh, of the book is something like follow, uh, the follows. 
uh, as you know, in Norway, for those who are in Norway right now, you know that the right thing to do over the weekend or the vacation, whatever, is to go to your hütte, your cabin out in the way up in the mountains or in the fjords or the further away, the better, so to speak. And this is where Norwegians um, kind of uh, uh, enjoy, uh, 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 you know, the, the true life, um, the, the good life, the place of... Uh, of contemplation uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and in many ways also spiritual life. And they take this, this uh, uh, life in the periphery, if you like, and they use that as a way of measuring success on the environmental side uh, when they go down to the city or down in the valley. So the, uh, the ideas from the periphery become frames environmental debates in the, um, in the city or in the valley or down where there are environmental problems. Um, when Norwegians go abroad, they start talking about the entire Norway as a hitta. Uh, all the Norway then becomes the, uh, the, the other. Um, the methodology for this is pretty straightforward. It's straight out of, you know, Ed Said's uh, Orientalism, Occidentalism, if you want to, want to go into the uh, methodology of it, and which the hitta is the Oriental exotic other, uh, which frames uh, the Occident, that is the city. And then abroad, Norway becomes the Oriental other to the polluted world that it needs of help. So those are sort of the, the methodological sort of reference um, uh, frame of, of, of this book. Um, I tried to sort of put it in within a larger debate, which is, uh, has been raged in Norway um, about what does it mean that Norway is sort of a good citizen in the world. Um, this the, the, in the which is called the Guheads tyranny, the, the tyrannies of the of the good. Uh, and I've, I've, I've tried to sort of made a, a comment on that debate in this book, uh, uh, a debate which I think has been quite interesting and, and, and productive in many ways uh, to reflect on uh, Norwegian identity, uh, but also problematic. Uh, so my, my, this book is a contrib contribution to that debate. Um, I only have about 15 minutes, so I want to be short, but I wanted to uh, perhaps uh, show you some slides to wake you up, reminds you where, you know, what this is from. So I'm going to share screen in the next 10 minutes or so, and then we can kind of uh, merge into you know, the debate. I hope you forgive me. Finarno or Dolly, can you say, are you able to see this? Good. All right. So this is the seed bank up in the Spitsbergen. Um, and uh, this is an example of how Norway portrays itself to the world, you know, as the good savers of the seeds. Seeds here being both physical entities, that is the seeds itself, but also like uh, uh, the bank uh, of, of protecting the world uh, genomic heritage, uh, being the good people in this way. Um, Let's see, uh, there's the book, here's the seed bank, here we see uh, Stoltenberg and the whole promotional around it. Um, then we want to start here at, at Finse. This is a place called Garpen. This is where ecological research uh, begun in 1965. You see the small little stone house actually inherited from the, uh, uh, the building of the railroad. Um, this is uh, also the center of a lot of tourism in Norway, of nature tourism. Uh, and then, as you can see, it's also a very uncomplicated environment compared to a forest. So from an ecological point of view, you can get a sense of what's going on in this environment uh, 
at least it's easier than than see, seeing what's going into the forest. It's less complicated, so you it's it's better for teaching purposes. Um, FINSA became the center for uh, for ecological research in in Europe. This is one of the biggest ecological research stations. I believe in Europe, if not the world, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a huge station in which everyone teaching ecology would go to get a proper you know, idea of, uh, of ecology. Um, and for that reason, Ardangevida, which is adjunct to the, the Finse area, uh, would be an ecological research area and should thus be protected. So there is the sense of the, the pure Ardangevida versus the polluted uh, uh, or problematic uh, um, fjords, uh, valleys, uh, city center. That is uh, very much part of the, the lure of ecological research and why that became exciting. If you're a young student going to the mountains and, and, and being in this type of environment is an exciting and, and a way also promoting the, the field. Here we can see Ivan Uspe, one of the leaders of it, uh, lecturing for his students, and you can see they're having a good time. There's a lot of romance and a lot of excitement for the students being in this type of research environment. Thus, you can recruit to the field. Uh, the book uh, starts with Silent Spring, the translation of Silent Spring to Norwegian. Uh, um, uh, it's kind of interesting. Yes, ecology was discussed before this book, but it's not much uh, uh, in comparison to after. So this book, in many ways, uh, the, the, it's, it takes an American debate into Norway. Um, and then the book finishes with, uh, uh, with the Rio meeting in 1993, uh, isn't it? Um, uh, so 92, uh, that's going to be the end of the book. So, but most of the book is situated in the 70s. Um, I start with the three heroes of the periphery. There is uh, Tur Heidal, who went to uh, um, uh, the Fatuhiva Island, where which kind of became his place of, uh, of of where everything was in harmony, everything was good, though problematic, and he had to leave. But later in life, you'll make Fatuhiva as the comparison to everything. So Fatuhiva is a good place, and everything else problematic. Um, uh, this book, Fatuhiva, was written in, in 1974. The 1937 version is, 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 is basically a different book. Um, Helga Ingstad is another, you know, the, the uh, Pelsiegelieb uh, uh, is, a, is a must read for every inspiring uh, Norwegian nature enthusiast. Uh, there we have this Rousseauian idea of being out with indigenous people and you, and you will kind of discover yourself as a true person. Uh, and finally, Frederick Barth, who introduced uh, ecology to Norway uh, through this article from 1956. Um, and and in, that's important because uh, Frederick Barth was an anthropologist, meaning ecology in Norway always included human beings. Uh, it was human beings was not an add-on. Um, and he's just also taken out of the very periphery that is Swath in North Pakistan. You can't be more in the periphery in many ways. Uh, and and Swath in North Pakistan became the model for understand human beings in Norway, um, especially in the work of Uta Brox, who was a student of Frederick Barth, um, and talking about what's happening in northern Norway, what's happening on the remote islands of northern Norway, as, as kind of modeled on the, uh, the people of Swath in North Pakistan. Um, so, so there, there is, a, is an interesting connection of how the periphery in Norway, the fish farmer, um, uh, uh, and the, the people in, uh, living uh, in, in the remote uh, becomes the model for how uh, Norwegians should refashion themselves in, in the center. This is in the, in the early, uh, late 60s and early 70s. Um, in many ways, this exhibition of 1969 starts environmental activism in my book that is uh, made by Architecture School of Norway. Um, it was at the University Plaza in the center of the city. 
Um, and you hear, see, so one of the drawings from it, architects being clever in terms of like putting up a clear message. It says, today you see this polluted world in which all the resources are, are put into this human consumption and in that as cloak or, or sewage. Um, by the way, I live right here where there's a lot of pollution. Um, this is the moment of roaring laughter. Uh, and tomorrow you will see everything is in harmony uh, in the Norwegian countryside, ecological harmony. Um, again, the periphery being here, the uh, being the and the periphery uh, in the in, in the agricultural sort of uh, uh, world in Norway, and the problem here being New York City. Um, the guy who endorsed this was a guy called Sigmund Qualoy. Uh, uh, he, he to save this Mardella waterfall, who is in the front page of my book, and um, very important environmental activism thing. Again, you see the Mardella being the periphery, the model of the good. Uh, and the way it should be, and, and and also the farm you see down here in the, in, in the valley being the way we should live in harmony with nature. Um, we see here the Mardola demonstration, which in a way came together. Uh, the picture of Arne Ness is, is important for Arne Ness, but it's not really important for the Mardola demonstration. He, just, he was just there for a week. Um, uh, and was not he, he? He became an environmentalist through this. Uh, before 1970, it's, he was hardly concerned about environmental issue, at least not in public domain. Um, hippies go home if you had one. It was a local conflict. Uh, these uh, Arnenes, Sigmund Kvalev, Nils Forlund, they went to a place called Bathing Village in the Rolling Rolling Nepal. You, this is the remote, this is the complete periphery, and this is also where they found the Shangri-La of ecological living, which they used to uh, uh, create an image of how Norway should be in the future. Um, this is where people live in harmony with nature, harmony with ecology, in a mountainous kind of unfriendly environment in terms of resources. We can here see uh, Ness and Kuala, there's Forlund is taking the photo in bedding. Um, uh, here we see Eric Steininger, who is doing ethnological botanical research, uh, seeing how did they understand the, uh, uh, the plants, how did they use it, maybe it's something we can learn from it. Uh, Steininger actually became sort of a, 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 a critique of it all when he came back, but it's, a, but it's a telling image, nevertheless. At the back of this was really just, you know, a, a try to, bedding was very kind of like the, the, the Norwegian mountain farm. So it was, a, in a way, a defense of the mountain farm as the periphery in which we should rediscover the Norwegian heritage and Norwegian sustainable living. Um, this is where the deep ecology was written, uh, written down. I always imagine Arne Ness sitting in this chair. Actually, this is his chair, looking out and thinking deep. Uh, in German, it's called Weltanschauung, uh, meaning both looking out at the world, but also uh, uh, seeing, uh, seeing uh, uh, a, a certain view of a way to, 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 to see world. Anyway, this is where he wrote deep ecology. It's also down here, just below his, his Tweidegastein cottage. Um, this deep ecology was inspired by a lot of environmental activists um, uh, in uh, in Oslo. Um, we here see the the reading uh, the, the reading material they had uh, for their their uh, ecological course, Natur och Nature and Society. And you will see this sort of Cold War dichotomy between on the top here the harmonious good uh, uh, world with the with the, the waterfall there, and then the industrial society of the city that is Oslo or New York. And same here, you see the Mardola waterfall in the back with, with, uh, with the picturesque farm, you see the demonstrators here, and then you see the industrial society coming in. There's a Cold War dichotomy between the good and the bad. 
uh, in which the environmentalists are fighting for the for the good side. Um, this came to a, a standstill in in um, in the Alto Catocano uh, uh, debate, in which you see the same kind of either you choose the unpolluted, the good Alta River, or you have you choose the dam. It's an either or dichotomy typical for the Cold War, and the debate kind of fitted with that. It was a long and very dramatic uh, civil rights uh, debate around this, in which the environmentalists would eventually lose. Here you see an image from that in 1992, 82, I mean. Uh, in the midst of this was Brundtland, uh, prime minister uh, at the time. Uh, she's putting on a heroic uh, uh, smile. The smile is uh, in the weeks we call it Poklistra. It's not really a real smile because she's confronted with the Sami people. Um, this was the Norwegian equivalent of the civil rights movement. Um, the civil rights movement uh, has been in America and everyone, this, the Sami people was stood up against uh, the oppression because the Alta place was their land. And the, then uh, he, she would build a, a water a dam in their land. And they saw it as a colonial, uh, uh, and it was a, a colonial uh, way of oppressing their voice and their rights. So they, here they are on hunger strike. Uh, uh, against her. And it's important to see that she was not seen as an environmentalist or as a civil rights advocate at the time. On the contrary, she was the problem, she was the problem Norway needed to face. Um, yet she also enjoyed the, the nature, like many other, or almost all Norwegians, she went to her hütte, her cabin, and this is her, you know, doing cross-country skiing. And I, I believe it's fair to say that she was a nature lover in this way, like most Norwegians, and, and would love to go to the cottage. Um, she found her source of inspiration from this book, and this is Jürgen Randers on the left. Uh, there's a whole chapter about him in the book. Um, here we see him going to uh, 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 various meetings, meeting you know, all kinds of people, um, um, developing something on a big future for the Christian hope. So he was engaged in the Christian community. Here we see them um, in Bucharest. Uh, notice here, uh, this is where this, the idea of sustainable society was launched. It comes from Jürgen Randers. Uh, but it pops up in a theological debate, and the theological debate is really situated in how to envision the coming of the new Re Jerusalem, the second coming of Christ, uh, these, these, these sort of the, the coming of the new Eden, and, and, and uh, Randers suggests the sustainable society be a way of, uh, of putting up that in a, not, in a less kind of offending language, if you like. If you are not Christian, these words become a, a sort of exotic. Sustainable society is not. And Grolin Brundtland, she, she kind of, through various ways, she adapted that language of sustainable uh, society um, in her, her book, uh, Our Common Future, the World Commission on Environment and Development, in which the sustainable society and sustainable development um, became an absolutely core part. So I argue that there is a, a religious longing in that book for the, for the resurrection of Eden, although Brundtland herself is not religious, I have to say. Um, uh, she would then, uh, uh, thanks to this book, she would start these two centers, the Cicero uh, uh, at the University of Oslo. Notice here that the, uh, uh, Ted Hanisch, he's uh, one of her accolades, uh, former state secretary for Brundtland, and then uh, the pres vice president of Statoil is in charge of Center for International Climate and Environmental Research in Oslo. This is absolutely a key to understand climate debate in Norway. Climate debate was controlled by uh, Brundtland uh, and by Statoil uh, uh, to, to kind of facilitate a climate debate that was, would not stop oil exploitation in Norway. Um, 
that it was, yet there was a tension between climate change and oil and Stoltenberg would be the one who had addressed it. Stoltenberg was the leader of the, uh, the, the, the Workers' Youth League. Uh, 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 here we see him at Utøya to Gredve Brundtland. Brundtland is not a good, great guitar player. You see that on her face. I think it's a sort of a fun face, if you like. Um, uh, but here, here's the, yet the dilemma, right? How do we get, how do we, you know, merge these two problems uh, 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 together? And Stoltenberg, this is his notes, he would say that, you know, if we invest uh, uh, basically uh, 500 kroner uh, to get one ton of carbon dioxide uh, away uh, on the oil, it's going to it's going to cost a lot of money, but if you do something else, uh, it will cost less money. So it's a cost efficient kind of type of argument. Um, uh, saying that we can use money somewhere else than on oil to get more money for the for the buck, so to speak. And here's the, with the image on it. If we buy solar cells in Burkina Faso, we'll get much more climate reduction than if we try to do something with oil. So let's focus on 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 solar cells in Burkina Faso. So it was a cost benefit argument for why we should stay away from oil and instead do other. Uh, environmental uh, 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 cost-efficient uh, ways of dealing with climate. And this he took to uh, Kyoto in 1997. He made something called tradable energy quotas, which is through the European Union, and a clean development mechanism, which is basically this. You do something in like building solar cells and get credit for doing that at home. Um, that of course collapsed that whole system. But anyway, um, and this he promoted at United Special Envoy for Climate Change and many other for us, uh, and I, I believe is still very much uh, uh, part of that. Whoa, there you go, thank you. And that was my run through my book in 10 minutes, uh, the elevator spiel. Um, I do have footnotes in the book, if you don't believe it. I'm gonna stop my sharing and take questions. Thank you, Peter, that was great. Uh, and also I think one of those examples where the slides actually do add something. Uh, it was good to see those pictures. Um, so I just want to like uh, start off while waiting uh, for people to come up with their questions. Um, but I want to ask you in a way where you wrote this book from. Would you consider yourself on the periphery or in the center? Could this book have been written from anywhere else? I, I've definitely written this book in New York, both physically and emotionally. Uh, I'm sitting in New York right now, and it was for me in New York an opportunity to reflect back on my country, so to speak. I say my country, but could identify as Norwegian, and I, 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 I think Norway is a good place, and I did not go to New York to escape Norway or any, any other way sort of be critical of Norway, but that distance has allowed me to uh, look at Norway with fresh eyes, um, so to speak. Uh, so the book is, uh, as an author, I'm situated in New York, reflecting on the country I know well. Yes, from the from the periphery of New York, uh, I hear you. <laughs> uh, so we have some questions now. That's good. So uh, Hedda, will you get the first one, and I shall unmute you there. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, uh, yes, I have the book. I did not pay for it. I got a review copy from the publisher. Uh, and I have also read the entire book, so uh, sorry if the questions are a bit precise. Uh, I have one comment and two questions, and I'll try to be brief. My first comment is that this notion of hitte as something universal that all Norwegian has is more of an idea than a reality, and it reflects a kind of privileged perspective. So I think you don't 
really emphasize that in the book, but I think it's worth mentioning because we keep saying that everyone goes to Hitta and everyone has Hitta and it's definitely not true. Um, so the second one is more theoretical. Uh, you mentioned Edward Said and the whole Oriental perspective, but you do not mention uh, Johannes Fabian, who has that um, phrase, the denial of co-evilness, that he uses to argue that a perspective on uh, tribal societies places them as this peripheral uh, community in the past. And it strikes me that at least that's what Heyerdahl also does, but it's also something that might be said for Norway, or I've at least heard some Norwegian Americans talk about the good old country that is Norway, and then we're old in a way that's sort of strange and, and a bit, yeah, curious. Uh, so that's a question, sort of, have you thought of that and why or why didn't you include anything on that? And the last one is on uh, your discussion of, of sort of the transition into climate change perspectives, where the use of sustainable development supplant, or is, yeah, it, it sort of steps in instead of the steady state perspective that Arnenes had. Uh, and you draw on um, the PhD thesis by Ingeve Nielsen, who describes like the development of energy politics in Norway. Uh, but you do not discuss the relationship between energy fundamentalism and relativism that he discusses, which I would argue is necessary to justify sustainable development. So energy relativism is the argument that you can have continued development and growth without increased use of energy. And that is really strong in the late uh, 1980s in Norway, and it is used explicitly to justify the possibility of sustainable development, which is very different from steady state, no development. So it's, I, I, since you read Nielsen's thesis, I guess you have a good reason for why you didn't include it, but I'd love to hear. Oh, thank you. First of all, thank you for reading my book and perhaps even writing a review that's much appreciated. It's, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like the only three people I read my book is myself, my editor and my mom kind of. And, and you know, it's so wonderful when, when you get readers and especially readers with, you know, good questions. Um, and uh, uh, so to take it first, the, the Hitta thing, you're, you're completely right. Um, it's not everyone has access to a Hitta. And I do mention that in, in chapter one, I point to statistics from 1970 saying something to the effect, and I'm just taking these numbers out of my head, that what is it? It's only 16% does not have access to a hitter, uh, uh, but they will somehow borrow or 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 go to hospices or or you know sports hotels or or have it as a sort of mental place. Um, uh, uh, so it's not something everyone owns uh, naturally. So uh, so I I do think I I I mentioned that statistics. Uh, perhaps I should have emphasized it more. Uh, about Said, I, I do refer to Said in a in a humorous footnote meant to kind of tease the Oslo friends. Uh, I think my point here is so universal and it's so all over in many ways that that I I, I chose not to you know to build up a huge uh, arsenal of footnotes around it. Um, and, and go too much into it in, because um, uh, the vocabulary and historical methodology is it's so solid. So I, I thought you, you, you will end up having to kind of almost state the obvious. Uh, uh, so I just gave the a, a hint. Um, 
I did not want the book to be a, a book about methodology. Uh, I wanted to be a book about telling a story. Um, uh, uh, the the point about uh, energy fundamentalism that's a, that's actually a really good uh, criticism of the book. Uh, why didn't I deal more with that? Why didn't I dive more into it? Um, and I can, you know, there, there is also another story I could have, I've, I've avoided, you know, if you really want to uh, go after me, uh, and that's the story of architecture, hit the architecture, right? There's, uh, what about the aesthetics? What about the art history, uh, architectural history of this? Um, the, the energy debate, uh, as I see it, uh, really comes out of uh, the energy oil crisis of 1973, isn't it? The oil embargo, 1973, 74, around there. Um, and there is a huge debate before it and after it. Uh, uh, I tried to allude to it when I talked about um, the Slagentangen uh, debate. Um, when I read through that debate, uh, it did not really fit my argument. Um, so I said, okay, either I write a big, big chapter about this or I don't. Uh, and that was a choice. I did. Uh, I felt that the story would have been um, would have taken my argument and or my story in a very different direction. Uh, so I have all kinds of you know lots of notes around it, and I'm sort of wondering what to do with it. Um, you write about this being a, a, a tension between the relativism debate versus the uh, steady state debate. Uh, uh, and that Anders in many ways is situa situated in that, so is uh, uh, Rosenquist. Uh, uh, the philosophers are not so engaged in it, which in itself is kind of interesting. Why are they not you know, into it? And I think they're more into ethics than energy. They're you know, <laughs> skeptical to the energy. Um, so, so yes, you're right. Uh, I could have written or should have written perhaps a whole uh, chapter on it. Uh, and uh, Ingve has done an amazing job on it. Uh, I refer to, I, I would recommend everyone to, to look in, into his work, admire his work. Um, perhaps I would just, you know, repeat his work in a way which was not be good or it could be good for, for, uh, for, for, for the debate. Um, I'm, I'm one of his fans, if you like. Uh, uh, his, his, his work on, uh, on the early history of climate change, I think for me was particularly important in climate debates. Uh, very, uh, very interesting and, and interesting conceptually, but also very interesting empirically. Uh, he was able to dig up material and, and do interviews and whatnot, which I haven't, which I just can sort of benefit from. Uh, uh, so, so kudos to him. Um, is Ingrid here listening in? Maybe he is. I don't know. I can't see his name, but if you, if you are Ingrid, you know. I haven't seen him. To you. <laughs> Was that a good question, Hedda? I'm not sure. Okay. We have lots of questions, so we can move on. I mean, the cabin discussion, we could uh, keep hanging for a long time. Uh, since I will also work with that. And I think you'll find a share of cabins today is, is much higher because they've been like crazy but they're, I wouldn't say, not really peripheries anymore anyway. Uh, but that's for another discussion. Uh, next question for Henrik. Yeah, thank you. Um, um, 
I, I have just looked a little bit in, in your book, so I, I haven't uh, read all. But 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 it seems like that you you have you have a very biographical approach to to the field. So so you you are you're telling the story of persons and their um, biographical impact. But I wondered to what extent um, is this part, or, or do, you, do you put it, this part in a bigger picture where, uh, where the, the persons are somehow characters in a evolutionary play of late modernity and, and a crisis of modernity? And, and then the choice of the, the term periphery, to what extent is that linked to uh, something antithetical to modernity? Is it is it a modernity, pre-modern or post-modern discussion, or uh, and or, or to what extent is um, yeah? What what exactly do you mean by periphery? We, it could be different things, and and then this periphery is also the the link between environmentalism and nationalism. And, and, and so, so there's some strands in a global environmental uh, perspective. And, and then there are also much more local, protective, nationalistic or regionalistic. Um, yeah, if you could comment on some of this. Oh, thank you so much. And it's an honor for me having you uh, as a listener to, to, this, to this, this modest talk. So thank you for, for being here and thank you for asking this question. Um, the biographical is actually very important to me, and it's important for two reasons. First of all, I'm a, I'm, I'm a social historian of science. I really do believe that, that, people's, uh, that the social context of research is important to understand research. Um, but it's also important to focus on the personal stories of these people because um, my audience, I hope, are environmental activists. And I want to tell a stories in which... Uh, you, what you do as an activist, what you do as a person matters. Um, I'm, it's written also for a young audience of, of young undergrads, and I want to tell them stories in which you as an agent, you can be an agent changing the world. Uh, uh, so this kind of idea of activism uh, and the scholar activists in the book is what I wanted to, to, to talk about, because I sometimes feel totally powerless you know how to deal with environmental issues so by by bringing in the, the the giving agency to human beings trying to be good to the world i was hoping to to motivate uh, so to speak people for active uh, activism there is here a slight criticism if you like of this turn turn trend towards uh, so uh, uh, de-emphasize human activism or human agency through uh, biocentrism uh, against uh, uh, anthropocentrism and these things, which I in many ways endorse. But we have to remember that humans are huge agents uh, in the world. And thus giving agency to humans may help environmentalists think about themselves as actors in this world. So that was important for me. Um, on the periphery, uh, what is the periphery? Uh, well, the periphery is, first of all, uh, it, periphery doesn't make sense un unless you have a center, right? If you take away the center, there's no periphery. So the, the world periphery is constituted by, by, by having a center. Uh, you can call it the center, the, the modern, 
if you want to, uh, then this, the, the periphery will be the anti-modern or the pre-modern uh, uh, or the future modern. Uh, and, and you can find that in the, in the literature uh, I'm discussing is that they would write about the, the, uh, the periphery both as the ancient past, how people used to live, and then also how people should live in the future. So that the past will, be, will become the model for the future, right? Uh, as in the case of the, the farmer or the fisherman or the fisherman farmer or the life out in, in the hütte. Um, so, so people have this dual life and still do in Norway. And maybe I disagree with you here, Finn Arnold, people having a dual life of living both in the center and the periphery, even though the periphery had this huge villa, Hütte, you know, which is basically a villa up in the mountains, yet the villa uh, uh, still constitutes the alternative way of, of thinking about the world. Um, you could see this this uh, spring. There was a in Norway. For those who are not Norwegians, there was you you couldn't travel to the hütte because of Corona, uh, you know, and and people in Norway was traumatized by this. It was a huge trauma. Believe it or not, this is talking about luxuries in the world, right? Uh, huge trauma for Norwegians not being able to travel to the hütte. It was page after page in a newspaper about it. Uh, and people talked about that as the most stressful thing during the pandemic. New Yorkers here are be bewildered about this kind of, you know, we can't travel to him. Why is that a big deal? Um, so this is a peculiar thing uh, with Norway. Uh, uh, the, you, you may, you know, you can, you can put a, a Rousseauian romantic spin on this, you know, the Hitta being the place for the savage or for the, uh, for the for the alternative, the Sami, the the, uh, uh, the 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 indigenous, the anything else but the center will become the periphery that can be modeled uh, for for rethinking about the center. So it's in many ways it's a modern de debate uh, because it presupposes the center. Um, uh, so so the environmentalist feuding Arnes and all this, it kind of belongs in a modernist debate because. Uh, the deep ecology presupposes the shallow ecology, right? There is this kind of sense that you need the other in order to uh, constitute who you are. But thank you for a very good question, uh, Hendrik. Right, so I want to move up a question that I think fits quite well after this from, uh, from Sadie Hale here. So can you please talk about why you think environmental humanities is such a thriving field in Norwegian universities? Do you see this fitting into Norway's pioneering position in terms of environmentalism? So environmental humanities is thriving many other places. Uh, Norway is certainly the uh, uh, one of the good places this is happening, but I will also point out uh, Stockholm and Munich and uh, uh, places in America uh, where, where, where this is a phenomenon is now emerging into environmental humanities, ocean humanities, climate humanities, you name it. Uh, so, so, but Norway and Stavanger and, and Oslo is definitely a place where this is happening. The Norwegian translation here of pioneer country will be Fordegangslam, um, which is means something that we are going to be the one who's going to show the world uh, uh, how to proceed. Um, uh, and I think uh, in many ways, uh, environmental humanities people in Norway see themselves as being part of a vanguard towards a better way of doing things. Uh, I don't mean that in an ironic way. I mean, in many ways, I endorse it myself, right? 
but it is the sense that we are on the vanguard of doing the approaching this in the in a new and more and better way than many others. Uh, uh, I hope I'm not stepping on any toes. I don't mean it that way. No. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Harald, you're next. Yeah, hi. Uh, thank you for the presentation and for the very interesting debate. Um, I'm an architect from profession, but uh, over the last 15 years, I've been a professor of first 10 years of School of Architecture in Bergen. Uh, and many, many years before that, I also was a lot at the School of Architecture in Oslo. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, based on the sketches you showed uh, us. Uh, I'm a professor at the School of, at the University of Stavanger at the moment, City and Region Planning. I, I have a lot of comments and questions, but I, I'll try to limit it. I, I, I just book, uh, ordered the book today, the physical book. Um, I didn't know I could get it free, so, but that's okay. I think we should support this book. Um, I wrote a, um, uh, an article a while back saying um, uh, um, shame on uh, flying or shame on going to the cottage. And with our students, we try to document because uh, our students become civil engineers in city and regional planning. And some of them have also architecture education from before. So we like to document, for example, CO2 emissions. And we found in a study we did that the emissions for people's um, you know, average going to the Hütte far away uh, is more than their average traveling to, to, to jobs. But this is something we don't talk very much about in Norway. We, we, we don't talk about the traveling and emissions for the Hütte, but we talk about the traveling for the job and, and other stuff. But I think what the, the, the thread you you're seem to have through the book, uh, and as I said, without having seen it, um, is interesting because I, I think going for the personal stories is, is really good. The names you have uh, mentioned, uh, I wrote a book uh, five years ago called Corruption, the Noble Way, which was exactly about the fight between dirty fuels and renewable energies. And it's the same kind of people that occur uh, here that might occur in, in your book, but also some of the people you mentioned. And I think we should, we should look at these, some of these names uh, closer. For example, as you mentioned, the role of Statoil uh, in environmentalism, um, in Cicero, et cetera. But it's not only that, in Stavanger, if you go micro and local, um, we found that uh, Statoil uh, and, you know, vice, vice president in Statoil had a chairmanship in uh, the board of uh, Stavang Aftenblad, the dominating paper here. And you can imagine what that did to the debate locally uh, in Stavanger for decades, for 13 years, actually, they controlled the newspaper. At the same time, many of the journalists were applying for information chief jobs in Statoil. So the problem, people like me, which I would say was an academic um, activist also, is that we didn't get um, access to the media here locally in the way we should have, basically because it was controlled by other people. Um, I've been in many debates with uh, Henrik Agar Hansen, and he always said, he always said this, 
don't worry, Harald. The, the, the day Statoil finds renewable energy is mature, we will be there, but not before. So uh, they were never interested in this uh, field at all. And uh, th there were also activities which indicated that they tried to hamper the development. Now, I was in Rio in 92. And the problem in Rio in 92, I was representing the International Solar Energy Society and Eurosolar, was that we tried actually to get energy up on the agenda because at the time it wasn't. Energy was not a separate theme. It was hidden between everything else. And the problem we had was that a lot of actors, even Norwegian actors, did not want to have energy on the agenda. It is on the agenda now, it's not hidden anymore, but it took a long time to fight that actually. So I think uh, history and historians, when they begin to look into the nearer history, they'll find a lot of uh, surprising stuff. For example, the last example is when I took the initiative to uh, get electric vehicles on the agenda in Norway by importing the first electric car together with Beluna and uh, AHA. Uh, I had to do that basically because the press wouldn't listen, but they, they would listen to uh, famous people, of course. So we tricked them in many ways. We took the car to Norway, then drove it in the toll roads without paying the bills. So the state had to come and take the car and sell it on auction several times. And that's how we got the publicity from TV stations, radio stations, etc., so that we actually got in the press. It was true to action. And the same players that you have mentioned were the players at the time that were fighting our proposal of the introduction of the world's best electric vehicle incentives. It was Grohal and Brundtland and her band. And the, the point is that the same people, they have been presented globally as big fighters for the environment through the UN Commission on Environment and Development. History shows they were not always that. They were also very, very practical. And if they had to choose between, you know, going for a full-fledged full, full oiled country or introducing competitive energy sources or technologies, uh, history will show what they actually chose because I did choose. So I really, to, respond. I really look forward to look at reading your book. Uh, I don't know if this was a question, but it was a lot of comments. Sorry, it was long. Oh, thank you so much, Harald. And uh, I own a, owe you uh, uh, another chapter in the book in the sense that uh, I think what you have done and so many of your colleagues have done in architecture school in Bergen, uh, uh, is fascinating and, and deserves its own story uh, of, of trying to, to reimagine re uh, a more sustainable sort of architecture. Um, you're totally right about traveling to, to cottages and that can be you know, polluting. I don't think that is reflected much upon, as goes back even to Arne Ness, who never really reflect on the fact that he's using the train to get to Ustausa. And the train being the very icon of modernity, isn't it? You know, the train is like the, you know, it's, it's the icon of modernity. Uh, uh, so there you're right on. 
Um, I think you're also right on in terms of saying that Statoil has penetrated uh, many part of Norwegian discourse in the, in the way we have not really uncovered. Uh, Stavanger being an obvious example, but I'm sure in other places too. There's like a joke in journalism. The moment you get good, you get bought up uh, and being an information, work in the information office in Statoil. Uh, uh, so I'm aware of that. And I think what you say also about energy uh, goes back to Hedda's question about energy. Uh, uh, and what happened to the energy debate and why that was not uh, included and the Rio is fascinating. Uh, people like Jens Stoltenberg, he was in favor of pumping up as much oil as possible uh, before the oil was would become obsolete. So it was kind of this race to pump up oil before it will be too late. Namely, some other sorts of energy will take over. Uh, and then store the uh, store the oil in this oil fund, right? So so he knew what he was doing. Um, but people had, you know, you you can also see in his, and I think he is sincere uh, that he cared about the environment too. He cared about climate. I think he he is sincere there. So there is this kind of dual language. Uh, that's the language of the nation, right? The language of the nation is both being sincere about environmental issues and at the same time, let's pump as much oil as possible. Uh, and that's, that in a way is that paradox, that tension is, is a Norwegian tension that has yet to be resolved. Uh, it may be a result for you, but not, not for the country as a whole. Uh, maybe we can agree on that. We have another question that follows up, I think, nicely on this, on Harald's reflection on, on this period, too. So Michael Bravo is asking, because uh, he would like to know more about how the ecological work of the 1930s was remembered or forgotten by the movement uh, movements in that complex period of the 1970s that you described in your book. So how were they thinking about what went on in the 30s? This is a question from Michael. From Michael. From from Michael for you. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Michael. And I am a huge fan of your work. Uh, I think I quoted in the beginning of the book uh, your work on the North Pole, particularly in, inspiring for me. Uh, so thank you for for listening in and thank you for being part of this debate. Um, the self perception of the Norwegian environmentalists uh, of this time, uh, meaning the seventies is that they are breaking with everything from, you know, with breaking with Norwegian tradition. Their self-perception is that we are doing something radically new uh, and different. Now, as historians, we know, of course, that's not true. Uh, you know, everyone is just turning to soil. And you may point back to uh, uh, traditions of, of, of the third, especially Nansen and the Friluftsliv, uh, tradition from the Norwegian expeditions to the North Pole, um, uh, many other kind of adventures uh, to the South Pole, etc. Um, that uh, that I, I I see there is a there is a legacy here, uh, especially from Nansen. Um, but to my surprise, very seldom does that come up in my sources. Uh, so sometimes I feel like we as historians want to want to draw these lines. Uh, because we feel that they belong to each other, yet the sources themselves are like more concerned about, you know, here and now and the future. Uh, uh, thoughtful people like Niels Forlund, who's a very thoughtful man, he, he, he would point back to Nansen. Um, Ness, he would not, because his perspective is just forward. You know, he, he, he's more of this sort of, had that kind of positivist, you know, we progressive view. 
but but Forlun was much more critical and thoughtful on this, uh, and he would drag up speeches and talks non uh, nonsense then, but he didn't get much of an audience for it. Um, and then there's the troubled the troubled thirties. Norway, like many other European countries, not like Britain, have a twisted kind of story uh, that goes back to the 30s. Uh, the Nazis, the, the far right, uh, all that is it's something that was a, could be close to home for these young radicals in the 70s, meaning their parents uh, and what they did or did not do during Sec World, Second World War. So there's that going on too. Uh, not every Norwegian was on the good side, uh, uh, historically. And, and uh, nature enthusiasm among the Nazis um, was part of a legacy that, that I don't think they were ready to talk about. And indeed, I don't think we still are ready to talk about that legacy uh, in Norwegian history. So, we, so you're immediately coming up to some very, I mean, nifty kind of stuff for us as historians to, to think about. But um, in terms of the larger public, ah, it hurts. But thank you for listening in. And you are totally right. So our time is approaching the end here. So I'm going to give what's probably the last question to your namesake, the other Peter, Peter Roberts. Um... Hi, Peter. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. And I'm looking forward to reading the book. Uh, I reckon it was, it's a good idea not to get too much into the 1930s, because when I think about that in Norway, I think about whaling and how Norway was getting it in the neck from all sorts of other countries for its horrible, uncivilized, barbaric and thoughtless attitude to butchering the largest and prettiest animals in the sea, which was somewhat exaggerated, but which nevertheless runs counter to, I think, a, a, the way that Norway would like to position itself today. But my question is, I think you're right that Norway has established a particularly green national persona on the world stage. And yet Norway continues to catch whales, pulled out of the, a, a lot of conventions on that. And Norway also doubled down and insisted that it could still kill seals uh, at the time when the sealing industry was going out of business financially, as well as being ethically problematic. Uh, admittedly, Norway did get out ahead of the pack on polar bear conservation, but it seems to me there are a few emblematic issues in which Norway deliberately sticks its head up and says, no, we're going against the green trend here, and they particularly involve charismatic animals. So my question is, do you think that is an observation that might hold a little bit more generally? And if so, why do you think it might be? Brilliant question. Thank you so much. And it sounds from the voice that you're coming from Australia on this one, uh, which is uh, is apt. Um, uh, note that most of the environmentalists I write about, they are mountaineers. They, uh, at heart, they're mountaineers. They like mountain climbing, technical mountain climbing, that is. But also the hitta is often located up in the mountain and by the fjords. Uh, so the ocean in general becomes in in an area which is often ignored in environmental debates. Uh, the whaling issue comes in a way as a surprise to Arne Ness and the deep ecologist. And they're like, oh, whales, yeah, we haven't thought about that. You know what to do? And they, their initial response was, well, uh, you know, whales are like cows and we, I guess we can kill them if, uh, if there are enough of them um, type of argumentation. And that became the Norwegian official stand, meaning the mink whale, there are enough of the mink whales, so what's the issue? Um, and apparently, uh, 
that some scientists will support that. There is enough mink whales, so why shouldn't we harvest this natural resource? Uh, and, and, and Ness would kind of endorse that uh, all the way up till very recently, actually, I think, you know, through the 90s. Uh, and this is, here's the tension between uh, an ecological perspective and an animal rights perspective, right? Uh, so the animal rights people say, well, you, you know, you can't do this. You know, these, these are it's sentient species. These are, you know, but animal rights never stood strong in Norway. It, it was ecology that stood strong and ecological perspectives that stood strong, meaning it was okay to kill higher animals as long as they, there are enough of them. Uh, which of course is deeply offending. Uh, I'm living in America, so I can see the offense, uh, but that's how it's thought especially Norwegian heritage on it, which is, you know, from the 30s, which is absolutely horrific. Um, and it's not only whaling and, and pup, uh, pup seals uh, hunting, but also the, the treatment of wolves and bears and lynx uh, and many other animals which are widely accepted in Norway as, as being hunted down. Um, so it's, it goes beyond, uh, uh, beyond just whales, even though whales is a very good example. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought brought this forward because I don't want this my book to be seen as in any way as a defense of this Norwegian politics. Uh, uh, my role as historian is to expose uh, expose the contradictions, the uh, the uh, nuances, the conflicts, uh, the, the 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 tensions in in Norwegian environmental pro projections. Um, uh, that goes way beyond just whaling. I, I, since this is the last question, I also say Norway is doing some pretty nasty stuff around the world, uh, building dams and you know doing you know uh, all kind of stuff through their oil funds uh, uh, in, in in the global south, that uh, including the statoil drilling and the or sought to drill in the, uh, the the Australian blight, right? So there's all these things going on which is often unquestioned because but we are the good ones. Right, um, and and that goes for whaling too. It's like, well, you know, we are the good ones. We cannot do wrong. Uh, uh, so I think you question and your question line of questioning is very good and and right to the point. And I, I really appreciate it. And I think the Norwegian listening in should should take that question very very seriously um, because uh, uh, what the Norwegian whaling story is not not a pretty story at all. Thank you very much, Peder, and thanks, Peder, for that question. Um, Peder actually comes to us via Australia and Denmark and is now uh, an associate professor here in Stavanger. So um, we're happy to have him. Um, and we were so thankful to have you uh, today, Peder, um, Anke, talking about the power of the periphery, how Norway became an environmental pioneer from the world, uh, which is out with Cambridge. University Press. So thank you very much uh, for joining us for this discussion. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening in. Do send me an email or a question or anything. So if you have concerns, uh, I am uh, always open for debate. <laughs>